it's interesting. It's always been interesting to me how God has prepared me for things that are going to take place. Several years ago, when Eric was only a couple years old, I was working full-time plus working with the church on weekends. Very busy schedule, going to school, working on my master's degree at the same time. My custom was to spend all day Saturday getting ready for services on Sunday. And on this particular week, after church was over on Sunday, uh, the kids went to sleep. Jesse was worn out. And I, uh, I just sat down and started thinking and preparing and reading and basically got my sermon all done. My sermon on that given Sunday was how we deal with serious things that come into our lives like death, like serious illness. Little did I know on that Sunday afternoon that just a couple of days later, Eric would be admitted to the hospital to have an emergency appendectomy in the middle of the night. Placed in the intensive care for burn patients because they had to leave his surgical place open to heal from the inside out because of the infection. Touch and go at times. My dad said, do you want me to preach for you Sunday morning? I said, no. God already took care of it. Last Sunday, He gave me the message that I needed for what we went through this week for me to share with the congregation. There's a line in a poem by John Benjamin, who was the one-time poet laureate of England. It goes like this. Oh, why do people waste their breath inventing dainty names for death? It's a poem titled simply, Graveyards. Every honest person can answer the question as Benjamin did in his poem. Because we invent dainty names. We don't want to face the reality of death. Sociologist Ernest Becker in 1973 published a book called The Denial of Death. At that time in my life, I was very involved in the whole death and dying culture. I actually had an opportunity, for those of you that might hear and know the name, I had an opportunity to study a little bit and meet uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was uh, considered a guru in the area of death and dying 
important at that time. In Becker's book, he says this, that of all the things that move men, one of the principal ones is his terror of death. As a part of my various vocations through the years and of my education and my ministry, I have seen this denial in action. When visiting bereaved families, I've often noticed how people deliberately avoid the word death and substitute phrases like left us, went home, went to sleep, passed on. Because of where I was at at that point in my life, uh, I had my two oldest children, Chauncey and Heather, and and uh, so we didn't use euphemisms for death. Death wasn't going to sleep. Death wasn't taking a trip. Death was death. And there was a dear gentleman in the church, Mr. White, that always sat on the right-hand side about oh, a third of the way back and... Mr. White always had candy in his pockets for the kids at church. And they'd come to him and he'd reach in and he'd hand them a piece of candy. Mr. White died. And uh, Chauncey's mother was working and so I had him and Heather and we were on our way to, to church and we went by the funeral home that Sunday afternoon for visitation. And uh, one of the ladies took Heather because she was just a baby. And I went up to the casket with Chauncey in my arms. And we were standing there. And Mr. White's daughter came up and stood beside us. And she said, Isn't Daddy resting so peacefully? And in the infinite wisdom of only a a two-and-a-half-year-old, Chauncey said, Oh, he's not asleep, ma'am. He's dead. (laughs) Of course, when a Christian dies, I have often explained it in terms of going to sleep. Because for the Christian, those of us that have been born twice, we only have that one death experience to deal with. And, and I've often explained it to children like uh, when we would go to sleep on the floor watching TV and we'd wake up in bed in the morning and not know how we got there. And I've often shared with young people that that's my understanding of, of death. That I'm one of these days I'm just all of a sudden going to realize hey, I'm not watching TV anymore. I'm in a comfortable, beautiful place. Because God is going to wrap His arms around me and He's going to transport me into His presence when I leave this physical world. You see, I believe that the person who treats death lightly may be the person who fears death the most. And I think the assurance that you and I have as Christians should not make death any less real in our thinking And we shouldn't begin to think about it flippantly. And our text for today is of the very nature of looking at and realizing the importance of understanding death. 
One commentator summarized our text before us this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, by saying, in this chapter, Solomon drew two conclusions. Death is unavoidable, verses 1 to 10, and life is unpredictable, verses 11 to 18. I want to do something this morning that I, I haven't done in this series. I want to read that ninth chapter. You can follow along in your copies there that you have. There's a transitional sentence picking up from chapter 8 about how Solomon said that when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. He says, verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1, All of this I had laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man doesn't know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. And while they live, and after they go to the dead, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already appointed what you should do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not so to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For a man does not know the time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was none found in it, a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. 
But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. May God add His blessings to our reading of His Word. As I looked into and thought about this text for us for this week, again, I thought, wow, God has prepared me and and put me on a timetable to get me ready for all that I was going through. The potential possible death of my great-nephew, Jerry. The death of my close friend, Andy Baker. The death of a dearly beloved mentor, Wayne Shaw. The prognosis of just weeks for a friend's young daughter. And the one thing that stuck out to me in these first six verses is that I think that you and I are called as Christians to face death realistically. To face death realistically. Woody Allen once quipped, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But he will be there, won't he? He'll be there when it happens, as must every human being. Because there's no escaping death when your time has come. Death is not an accident. It's an appointment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 20 says, not tw- verse 27 says, and just as it's appointed to man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Death is a destiny that nobody but God can cancel or change. And if you noticed, Solomon began by saying that life and death are in the hand of God. Verse 1. Only he knows the future. Whether it will bring blessing in the form of love or sorrow in the form of hatred. Now, don't read this wrong. This isn't a statement affirming predestination or even a fatalism in which we're just passive actors in a cosmic drama. I do not believe, I do not believe Scripture supports the idea that God is micromanaging our lives. We are people who were created with freedom. Freedom of choice. Freedom even to turn our backs on God. To turn against Him. We're not just following an unchangeable script handed to us by an uncaring director. And throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, we've seen how Solomon has emphasized our freedom of discernment. Our freedom of decision making. But in His foreknowledge, only God knows what the future holds for us and what will happen tomorrow because of the decisions that you and I make today. And so, in verse 2, He basically says, as it is with a good man, so it is with a sinner. And some people will question, if that's so, why bother to live godly lives? Yesterday was an interesting day for Cindy and I. Because 
a young man who had been at camp with me for the archery week and who Cindy had already met, his sister decided to be baptized. And I was so thrilled when I asked her, uh, Samantha, who do you want to baptize? And she looked up at me with a smile and said, I want you to do it. What a blessing. Cindy asked her brother whether he was thinking about that decision. He said, yeah, I'm thinking about it. But, but I want to wait because I'm really afraid that I might sin more before I make that decision and get baptized. He was already gone before I was aware of this conversation. But let me ask you this. Which one of us sitting here today is more than likely not going to die with a sin that we've committed for which we haven't asked forgiveness? Unless you die with a a prayer on your lips saying, Father, forgive me for everything I've just done. I'm gone. There are going to be things that we've done that we haven't asked for forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that God is not going to forgive those. Because when we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the word that is used in reference to that sinning that we will do, do is a word, a Greek word, amartia. It comes from archery. It means missing the what mark. There is another word that's used in the Bible in reference to sinning. It's called anomia. Ah, the alpha primitive, meaning the negative of following the law. Lawlessness. And I shared with the kids last week in archery and barnyard camp, I said, as long as we're aiming at that target, and I went up to the target with one of them with arrows all over the place. And I said, we've been scoring this inner circle with the X is 10, and this ring is 8, and then we've been scoring this next ring as 6. And... But I said, if you're aiming at the target as a Christian, let me show you how God goes up and scores it. And I pulled one of the ones that was way out in the white, which would normally be a no score. And I pulled it out of the target and I said, good job, 10. I pulled one out of the, the red and I said, good job, 10. And I pulled one out of the eight, yellow area eight. And I said, good job, 10. And every arrow I pulled, pulled it out of there, I said, good job, 10. Because when you and I are trying to do what God wants us to do, when we're aiming at the target, God sees us as saints because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, if we turn and we start shooting those arrows out into the field, that is called rebellion, biblically speaking. And the writer of Hebrews says much about when we take that rebellious stance, we cannot expect forgiveness. It's not the same as missing the mark. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15 that everyone has to honestly face that last enemy death and decide how we're going to deal with it. And the, the reality is, is that 
people respond basically in two ways. The first he talks about there in verse 3. It's an attempt to escape. The fact of death and the fear of death will either bring out the best in people or the worst in people. And too often it's worst. I shared with you some time back about my good friend Jim Small who used to be the manager at Prairie States, minister at Onarga. When Jim found out that he had terminal cancer that had spread throughout his body, he said to me one day, Chauncey, since we were in Bible college together at Lincoln, I have been teaching people and preaching to people about how they should live. Now, it's my responsibility as a Christian to show them how to die as a believer. And he did. Right up to the week before he died, he was at my camp at Prairie States trying his best to get into the classroom to teach the young people. Until he became so sick on Wednesday or Thursday that he said, Chauncey, I I can't finish the week. We tend to escape. When death comes to a family, it doesn't create problems. It reveals them. Ministers, funeral directors, I myself and my own family have witnessed the ugliness that can happen after the death of a parent. You probably haven't heard or know about Joseph Bailey. But Joseph Bailey was a person that had a positive attitude toward death. Even though he and his wife had been through a valley, a valley of tough and troubled times. And yet God used them to bring comfort and hope to other people who were bereaved. And his book titled, The Last Thing We Talk About. The Last Thing We Talk About is a beautiful testimony of how Jesus Christ can heal the brokenhearted. Here's what he writes. Death is the great adventure beside which moon landings and space trips pale into into insignificance. You don't get that kind of confidence by trying to run away from the reality of death. You get it by facing the last enemy honestly, realistically, Trusting Jesus Christ to save you. And the second response is endurance. That's what Solomon is talking about in verses 4 to 6. When confronted by the stern fact of death, not everybody dives into an escape hatch and shouts, well, let's eat, drink, and be married. No, some hold on to the ancient motto, where there's life, there's hope. That's actually a good paraphrase of verse 4. I'm not going to worry about the screen unless it comes back on here. It might. Yeah, okay. Hope. And actually, that motto goes back to the 3rd century B.C., by the way. Uh, A Greek poet, Theocritos, said, Console yourself, dear Batos. Things may be better tomorrow. While there's life, there's hope. Only the dead have none. Uh, Solomon wrote about the dead 
And what, and what He wrote about the dead can be reversed and applied to you and I who are living. You see, the dead don't know what's happening on earth, but the living know. And we can respond to it. The dead can't any, add anything to their reward or their reputation. But those of you and I who are living, we still can. The dead can't relate to people on earth by loving, hating, or envying, but you and I as living people, we can. Solomon was emphasizing the importance of seizing the opportunity. Carpe diem. Grab the day while we live rather than blindly hoping for something that might be better out in the future. And I think that leads us to the second thing that Solomon is emphasizing in verses 10 to 7 to 10. And that's the response of living life joyfully. I think this is an uplifting diversion from the road to despair. The overriding factor is that God has already accepted your good works. And that's been a theme, one of Solomon's themes throughout the book. And it's going to be again in chapter 11. We'll look at it. The admonition, go your way, means don't sit around and brood. Get up and live. Yes, death is coming. But God gives us good gifts to enjoy so that we can enjoy them while we're alive. That was what was so refreshing about Courtney's post last night. Given weeks to live, she said she's going to make the most of them with her children, with her husband. Yeah, and, and, God, and Solomon's not urging us here. He's not urging, urging us to join the jet set and start searching for exotic pleasures uh, in faraway places. No. Look at the things that he lists. Common experiences of life. Happy leisurely meals, verse 7. Joyful family celebrations, verse 8. A faithful loving marriage, verse 9. Hard work, verse 10. I, I love it. I love the opportunity when most of my week is filled with sitting at a desk in front of a computer screen. I love it when I have the opportunity to get out and do some physical labor, some work. Uh, until I almost got blown to smithereens, I was having fun that day, wasn't I, Dwayne? I love I love it when God gives me something that I can do, that I can feel a sense of accomplishment for. When I can go to my bedroom at night and I can lay down tired from a day's work, ready to fall asleep. You know, in, many, in recent years, there's been a lot of voices calling us to return to traditional values in life. And some people are getting tired of the emptiness of substitutes. They want something more substantial. Something more than the right labels on clothing. Now, some of you know this wasn't the case. Although this came off of a clearance rack. At, well, actually, it is kind of a used one. It came off a clearance rack at a tuxedo place where it had been rented out. But almost all of my clothing now comes off of the shelves of Goodwill or Salvation Army. And I refuse to wear something that advertises for somebody unless they're paying me. 
Tommy Hilfiger can go broke as far as I'm concerned. His clothes aren't that valuable for me to advertise his name when I have to pay to, to do it. Somehow we get caught up with the idea of, of right names to drop at the right places. In recent years, that has been even more the case, I think, with some. While the bright light, I'm seeing a lot of young people who are saying, That's, that stuff just isn't that important. Solomon is basically enjoying us, encouraging us to enjoy every occasion. Life in that time was difficult in the average home. But every family knew how to enjoy special occasions. Weddings. It was a week-long festival. And that's when they wore those garments of white that Solomon was talking about. A symbol of joy. And they anointed themselves with expensive perfumes instead of the usual olive oil. And Solomon is saying, don't let that just be your manner of life on a special occasion. Live life that way because God has given you something to be joyful about. But Solomon also advised the people not to take what they have for granted. I love that passage in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, Rejoice! Rejoice! Again I say, rejoice! Do you know where Paul was when he wrote that? He was in prison, in a dungeon, a hole in the ground with a grate over it where they dropped the food into him if they gave him food at all. No bathrooms. That dungeon was their bathroom too. And he said, Rejoice in the Lord always! I think that might have been what Jesus had in mind when He told His disciples to become like little children. I'm going to be talking tonight uh, to, the, to the little ones. That's uh, grades 5 and 6 for their 3-day, 2-night, 3rd and 4th. 3rd and 4th grade. And, and I told Cindy, uh, I want you to bring me some things. I'm going to, I'm going to take a bunch of loose Lego pieces. I'm going to put them in a box. A little bit deep. And I'm, I'm going to shake it a little bit. And then I'm going to reach in and I'm going to pull out one of the things that Eddie made that's already put together. I'm going to say, wow, isn't that amazing? I just shook those loose pieces and look at this. Did you hear, did you hear Solomon? Time and chance. Do you really think that time and chance could create something beautiful as the world in which we live? Could create something as unique and individual as each of us sitting here today? No. I think that's why Solomon goes on and says that you and I need to also accept our limitations. Those common factors of time and chance seem to dog us all. Things don't always go according to plan, let me tell you. That happened big time one day this week. 
what determines the course of our lives and the end of them? You see, secular man who's living life under the sun really believes in the luck of the draw or the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, we, we've kind of developed a phrase we use here in the office. When something happens, Kay and I, one, whoever says it might beat the other one to it, we'll say, wow, wasn't that a God incident instead of a coincident? Luck, fate, chance, they're simply incomprehensible activities of a God who is working things to His eternal purpose. Verse 12, he's pointing out how we didn't determine our entrance into this world. And we don't have any power over our departure. And just as the fish and birds are trapped when in the full vigor of health and activity... uh, Man, did, did you see it, some of you? Eric went tuna fishing again Friday. Remember last time when he went last year and he caught the one that was just a little bit taller than him and he's six foot five? The one he caught Friday, Percy saw, Percy saved the picture. Percy said, was that real? It was. A hundred and five inches long and over 700 pounds. Took them four hours and 15 minutes as a group giving him relief because their arms were aching to reel that thing in. But that big, powerful fish was basically helpless once it got hooked. And unfortunately, that's what happens to us. We see that alluring temptation and all of a sudden we're hooked. I had a conversation on the phone with one of my nephews this week. We were talking about somebody that we both know and both love. And he said, Uncle Chauncey, you don't know how much I wish I could have the opportunity to go to that person and say, make it the last drop you ever drink. There's nothing positive, nothing good, nothing beneficial that's going to come of it. I know from experience. And he's only 34 years old. Solomon moves on though. He basically says the only one that can can help us, who can deliver us, uh, is God. And isn't that what Paul said in Romans 7? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Finally, I see in these words of Solomon the admonition to be choosing your destiny. Whatever the preacher, the teacher, Solomon, Koheleth has seen must have been a great impression upon him. For most of his journey on the road to discovering, uses and speaking about the meaning of life is immersed him in the folly of mankind. And the word great sums up the magnitude of his discovery. Great. That's the same word that Moses' father-in-law Jethro used when he told Moses that he would be free to deal with greater things. Nineveh, described as an exceedingly great city. Solomon uses the term, that same term, 
to describe wisdom as he has now seen it. And why does it impress him? We're given the answer in verses 14 to 15. It's a little story. It's a story about a man who was small and in a small group in a town and a king besieged it. But yet, because of wisdom, that small poor man was able to be successful. There's a Jewish targum that says it's an allegory. I, I don't, Jewish targum is an oral paraphrase or an interpretation of a Hebrew text in the Aramaic language. And the targum says that this is an allegory to talk about the invasion that you and I have as evil spirits. I don't think that's where Solomon was going. Because I think what he shows us in verse 16 to 18 is an assessment. He draws his conclusions. And we can do the same. He says wisdom is better than strength. God's way is better than man's. Even though it's a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Many may despise the gospel or even try to down his proclamation. God's words are wise and lead us to abundant life. But his final words one sinner, one sinner can destroy much good. Remember the song we used to sing? Oh, be careful little feet where you go. Oh, be careful little feet where you go. For the Father up above is looking down with love. So be careful little feet where you go. Be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. You know the wisdom of that song? That what we put into our minds tends to stay there. And that stuff starts to ferment and rot. And unless we allow God to cleanse us, it will rotten us and bring us to death. What's the big picture? I think the challenge that you and I have from this passage today is we need to get out of the rat race. We need to get out of it. We need to quit trying to conform to the standards of this world. One of the most godly men I ever knew was a guy by the name of Scott Marchie. And I remember Scott saying one day before a fairly large audience at Emmanuel School of Religion, he said, when I examine myself, and I look at the Word of God, I realize that far more often I am defined by the world in which I live than I am by the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God, do not be conformed to this world, but be metamorphosized. That's a Greek word. Transformed. 
Metamorphosis. That's when that ugly caterpillar buries himself in a cocoon and comes out a beautiful butterfly. Be renewed. Let's get away from the rat race of this world and start striving to live holy and pleasing and acceptable lives unto God. Let's pray. Father God, we make a lot of mistakes. Forgive us. Help us to read Your Word daily. To study. To renew our minds so that we can know Your will, Your good and pleasing will. Help us to stand out as leaders for what is right and what is good. To not be influenced by the faulty argumentation, the biased presentation of information that tries to to show things such as the abortion of unborn children as something other than just plain murder, which it is. Help us not to be willing to fall to those who are describing sin merely as sickness, as alternate behaviors. Help us to stand firm for what Your Word teaches. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. There's one place where we can receive salvation.